Bible trivia time. Who can tell me what the Great Commission is? Can recite it. That's how we state it, but the actual statement from Scripture. Yep, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and I'll be with you always. And then does anyone know where that's located? Matthew chapter 28, I heard, and essentially verses 18 through 20, if I remember correctly. Well, what if I told you that the Great Commission was also in the book of Revelation? They hear a get out? <laughs> I thought I heard that. Maybe I was imagining that. Okay. Well, it is. It is. And today I want to ask, what does Revelation uniquely contribute to our understanding of mission? I think that's what our passage points us to today. So a little bit of review. You'll remember that we're in um, the interlude or the parentheses, excursus, or the zoom-in moment of the trumpet judgments. We have the trumpet judgments, chapter 8 to the end of 11. But in between the 6th and the 7th trumpet, we get this zoom-in. Um, we had at the end of the first six trumpet judgments, we saw that humanity was unrepentant in the face of God's warning judgments. Um, but instead of moving forward with a further escalation of judgments, these seven thunders in chapter 10, God is now commissioning his church for a prophetic ministry of suffering, which we saw last week in chapter 10 as John, standing in for the church, eats the bittersweet scroll. And so as we get to chapter 11, we continue to see this theme now, this zoomed-in story of these two witnesses of Christ commissioning his church for a prophetic, prophetic ministry of suffering. Now, as one commentator said, um, he said, people find many books puzzling, but of all the books they find puzzling the most, um, it would probably be the Bible. And of all books within the Bible that people find the most pu puzzling, it would probably be Revelation. And of all the chapters within Revelation that people find the most puzzling, it would be this one. Um, and so I say that to say today, uh, our, pa our sermon today um, is going to be a bit more technical um, and a bit interpretation-focused. We will have payoff with some good time for application in such Heavy, heavy emphasis on application next week, but I just ask that you bear with me and put your thinking caps on this morning, trusting that Scripture will yield its value as we seek diligently to understand uh, this pretty jam-packed passage this morning. All right, so what we're going to do this morning, though, is I want to, in a, in a way to try to handle this passage maybe a little bit more easy, is to just tackle three major interpretive issues at the outset and then we'll walk through um, the story. Okay, so the, the three issues I want us to look at to kind of get our bearings is, one, you have this issue of the temple and its trampling. Two, you have the identity of these two witnesses. And then one other third issue that I'd like us to just be aware of is these time frames. You have 42 months, 1,260 days, and then elsewhere in the book this gets referenced as a time times and half a time. All right, let's start with the two witnesses, though, because I think that one's actually the easiest and it will help us then get our bearings to better understand the temple. 
Now, you may be familiar that this passage can oftentimes be popularly interpreted as as folks who kind of view Revelation as talking about a future time period, and there's like literally, there's going to be like two literal witnesses in a literal rebuilt temple in literal Jerusalem. Um, I think a better argument, as we've been arguing throughout the book, but as we'll show today, is to understand this symbolically. We're in apocalyptic literature, and so our assumption should be that it's giving us symbols, first of all. And what we get, actually, is an explanation of the symbolism in verses 3 and 4. When it talks about these two witnesses, notice in verse 4 that it says the two witnesses are two lampstands. Now, where have we seen lampstands before? Chapters 2 and 3, where the churches are depicted as lampstands. In other words, these witnesses are the church. They are the lampstands, which is symbolic for the church. The lampstands being the light of the world. As the church, we are meant to be a light to the world as the lamps, which then fits the fact that they are depicted as witnesses. They are to be a light to the world. They are to prophesy and speak God's word to the world. The question as to why there's two of them, well, if you may remember in the Old Testament, in order to bring a charge against someone, you needed to have two witnesses. And so this is the sufficient amount, two representing the church's sufficient sufficient testimony to speak prophetically to the world, the gospel, and a word of judgment for those who reject its message. In other words, the two witnesses is a picture of the church bringing a charge against the unbelieving world. So think of the prophets in the Old Testament, who mostly spoke to Israel, but spoke prophetically, telling of God's offer of salvation, the need to repent, and if not, impending judgment. And John is saying that is, that is the role of the church today to the nations around us. We are like the Old Testament prophet to the world. Now, the second image is that of the trampled temple. And this image is to be read parallel to the two witnesses. This passage is giving us two images that work together to really refer to the same thing. We're supposed to read them together. So if the two witnesses are the church, then we, it's understood, it's expected, that the temple is also an image of the church. Well, let me give you some reasons, further reasons why. Every other use, every other use of the word temple in the book of Revelation does not refer to a literal temple, but is used symbolically. So just one example in this chapter, verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was open. It's not referring to a literal temple building, but it's referring to God, it's referring to heaven as God's temple, his place of presence. And elsewhere in Revelation, you'll notice that it's not just the temple that's trampled here, the outer court that is, but then it's referred to the holy city, okay? Holy city here, which conjures up like imagery of Jerusalem, right? But every time that the word, that phrase holy city is used in the book of Revelation, it always refers to believers, not a literal city, but the new Jerusalem, so to say. In other words, the citizens of the city of God, not a literal geographic Jerusalem. And if this was a literal temple, why would only the outer portion of the temple be trampled? Isn't that a bit weird? Like, if you're going to trample the temple, why not trample the whole thing? So this seems peculiar. In other words, the peculiarity points towards the fact that this is symbolic. You're not supposed to take it literally. It would be a very bizarre circumstance otherwise. 
And this is fitting, too, because the New Testament depicts the church as this final end-time culmination of God's temple, that the Old Testament temple was pointing towards the, the full realization of God's dwelling with his people, which, of course, has been achieved in Jesus, and then the dispensing of the Spirit among his people. And so this would not be a bizarre or foreign imagery for John to be using. Even in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 21 and 22, the new creation the ultimate dwelling of God and his people is depicted as a temple. The entire new creation where we will one day dwell with God is depicted as a temple. And so even within the church to Philippi, for example, he promised them, those who conquer, they will be a pillar in the temple. What does that mean? The Philippian believers will become a literal pillar? No, it's, it's using temple symbolically. You are going to be a part of God's end-time temple of those who experience his presence forever. And so this idea of measuring then, we have the temple as symbolic for the church, the two witnesses as well, symbolic for the church. This idea of measuring the temple with a rod, this um, alludes to Ezekiel 40. Ezekiel 40, at the end of Ezekiel, he, Ezekiel is looking forward to this end time temple that we see fulfilled here. And he is told that there's this idea of measuring the temple there. And the idea of measuring the temple is this idea. It's where the establishment and protection of God's future end-time temple is signaled by the measuring. It's God saying, this temple is mine. I'm claiming it as my own. I guarantee it will be established and protected. And so to hear the symbolism of measuring us as a temple is a way of God communicating that he guarantees the establishment and protection of his church. My temple will be built the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, in other words. And this parallels what? The other interlude section we saw. In the seal judgment, we also got an interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal. And what did we see there? The people were sealed as a way of protecting them from God's judgment. So to here, the church is measured as a way of protecting them. Both uh, interludes function similarly then. And so we see this as we get into the little story of the two witnesses. We see this in the fact that the two witnesses are protected. If anyone would come against them, fire comes from their mouth and their enemies are destroyed. So the church, in other words, this is a symbol, the church in her inner worship, the altar and the worshipers, and our witness as the two witnesses, we are protected and preserved. The church in her inner worship, the altar in the worshipers, and in our witness, we are protected and preserved. And so there's one sense in which we're preserved and we're protected and we're guarded, and yet we also see there's another sense in which we're trampled. Because notice in, in verse 2, it talks about the outer court or the holy city being trampled. And I think that this outer court is referring to believers as well, because holy city, as we saw, always refers to believers, citizens of the new Jerusalem. And so we're talking about believers here, in a sense, being trampled. Well, how are believers, if we're protected, also trampled? Again, I think looking to the two, the story of the two witnesses helps us. They're protected in their ability to witness and testify, and yet at the end of the day, they're still killed. So in other words, what I think is happening here in the trampling of the outer court and the holy city of the temple complex here is to understand it that even as we witness, we are still a persecuted people. We may actually suffer martyrdom and death. 
And in this passage then, this, this vision is using the very literal trampling of Jerusalem that actually occurred in 70 AD, and it's using it as an image then of the church's sufferings. So although the church is protected and preserved in our witness, we are a suffering people. We suffer through that witness. All right, the last interpretive issue is these time references. In this passage, we get 1,260 days. We get 42 months. And then elsewhere in the book, we'll see a time times and half a time. All those add up to the exact same time, if you didn't notice, okay? So if you, if you were to count a month as 30 days, it adds up to 1,260 days. And then a time, time, and half a time is language from Daniel, which refers to three and a half years. So all of this, 42 months is three and a half years. So time, one year, times, two years, half a time, half a year. So three and a half years. All right, this comes from Daniel. Okay, so Daniel is kind of our place for going to what this is all about. And in Daniel 7 and 12, he refers to time, times, and half a time as a time of suffering for God's people immediately preceding the final arrival of God's kingdom. And it may also be connected to Daniel 9, Daniel 70 weeks, where as Jesus uh, is likely the fulfillment of that of the half point of that last week. There's that remaining three and a half years that then is symbolically pulled on here to refer to the, ch- the time of the church age. After Jesus has come, between his ascension and his second coming, in other words, we are in this symbolic three and a half years. So whenever we come across these time frames, 42 months, 1,260 days, time, time, and half a time, we are talking about the church age. We're talking about the symbolic time in which we live between the Messiah coming, as Daniel was anticipating, and the full arrival of his kingdom at the very end. A time that Daniel said would be characterized by persecution. And this is exactly what we see in our passage, as we've already looked at. The trampled temple. So the temple, the church is trampled for 42 months. It's a time where the two witnesses, the church is prophesying for 1,260 days. In chapter 12, verse 6 and 13 and 14, we'll, we'll see that the dragon, the Satan figure, he makes war against the woman and her offspring, which is a symbol, symbol for the believers. But the church is nourished in the wilderness for 1,260 days or a time times and half a time. In chapter 13, verse 5, the beast is allowed to exercise authority and and wage war against the saints for 42 days. So all of these are paralleling each other, which only goes further to support the fact that we read chapter 11 symbolically. Because if those chapters are talking about the entire church age, then chapter 11, with the same time references, um, is as well. And so when you come across these time references, again, this is a time of suffering, protection, and witness for the church for for the full arrival of God's kingdom. All right, so now that we have those three interpretive issues out of the way, let's look specifically now at the story of these two witnesses. The first thing I want us to note is, again, that by depicting the church as two witnesses, it is depicting the church as cast in the role of prophets. Notice how these two witnesses are cast in the role 
as prophets. On the one hand, they're depicted as like the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament. In verse 5, it says, If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes, just like what happened in uh, the book of Kings with Elijah. As well as in verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Again, something that Elijah did. Or they're also cast like Moses. So on the one hand, they're like Elijah. On the second hand, they're like Moses. Verse 6 says that they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So turning the, 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 the waters into blood like Moses. And with these plagues, it reminds us of the exodus. Okay. Now, these are not literal descriptions. Again, we are in apocalyptic literature, so we're not expecting the church to literally be able to breathe fire and turn water to blood and things like that. But what is the point of the symbolism? It symbolically shows us that the church is cast in the role of prophets just like Elijah and Moses. As Elijah spoke and rebuked Israel for its idolatry, and as Moses spoke against the persecutors of God's people, Egypt... So the church plays a similar role as we speak to the nations. We testify to the nations, and we're clothed in sackcloth, as it says in verse 3. This, this image of mourning. We're not, we're not bent against the nations because we hate them. We're, we're mourning for their wickedness. We're calling for them to repent because of the impending doom that awaits them if they don't. And so the words we speak then is a word that, that can function as a word of judgment. You'll notice in verse 10 that as prophetic people, it says in verse 10 that the world rejoiced when these two prophets died. Why? Because they had been a torment to those who dwell on earth. The church is a torment to the world. Uh, The message paraphrase puts it this way. I, I thought this was... Occasionally, I'll reference the message to see what it says. It's interesting. And it puts it this way. I thought this was, this was noteworthy. It says, For these two prophets pricked the conscience of all the people on earth. They made it impossible for them to enjoy their sins. How do we torment the world around us? Or at least, how should we be tormenting the world around us? Like It's a worthy question. Are we a torment to the world around us? Why? Because we are pricking their conscience. We're not allowing them to just go on enjoying their sins. And this symbolism conveys this idea of, of our indictment of the nations. You'll notice um, that even this language of torment and this use of the word plagues, as, as they're able to issue any type of plague, that was, that's the same exact language we saw in the trumpet judgments in chapter 8 and 9. The trumpet judgments were clearly God's judgments on the nations to warn them of the judgment to come. And by using the same language here, it's as if John is trying to tell us, hey, listen, the same words that we speak to the world, they're like warning judgments as well. We, we speak with the very judgment of God that he's given to us. Or in verse 5, as it talks about fire being poured out from their mouth, this is a common thing, thing in Revelation where things are coming out of people's mouths. It's kind of weird, right? Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. Not literal. What's the idea? The, it's a word of judgment. As fire comes from the mouth of these prophets, that is, that's a symbolizing that the words we speak are words of judgment. The idea here is that as we speak the bittersweet Um, the bittersweet scroll, we speak a sweet message of the gospel, but as it's rejected, what does that entail? 
It can be, it's a saving message, right? But if you don't believe it, does it save you? No, it, it actually functions to judge you. So as we proclaim the gospel, as we are a prophetic people preaching the gospel, those who do not believe our message, those who reject the gospel, are judged. And this is what we see elsewhere in Scripture where Jesus tells us in, in Matthew chapter 16 and 18, he says that to the church is given the keys of the kingdom. The key is something where you unlock, you lock and you unlock. You have the authority over it. Just like in Revelation, there, there, someone is given the keys to unlock the abyss. It's the authority over something. So when Jesus gives us the keys of the kingdom, it means that we're like an embassy of his kingdom. The church, local churches are embassies of God's eternal kingdom, able to kind of speak on his behalf. We have his delegated authority to be able to say, this person is in the kingdom, this person is out of the kingdom. By speaking the gospel, those who believe our message are in the kingdom. Not ultimately our message, but the message that Christ has given us to speak. And those who do not believe the gospel, we have the authority to say, that person is not saved based on the fact that you do not believe the message that Christ has given us. We speak the gospel. As John 20 says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The church functions as an embassy of God's kingdom, speaking and acting with Christ's delegated authority as it preaches the gospel, and on that basis is able to determine, do you believe the gospel or do you not? We also see not only are, are, is the church cast as prophets who then speak words of judgment, but we see the church also depicted as these two olive trees. So no, notice in verse 4, it said that these two witnesses not only are lampstands, which is this idea of being a light to the nations, but they're also olive trees. And these two, imagery, two images actually work together. It comes from Zechariah 4, where the spirit represented by the oil of the olive tree, oftentimes the spirit, as you may know in the Old Testament, is depicted um, with this idea of oil, like the anointing of someone is to anoint them with the spirit kind of idea. So this imagery comes from Zechariah 4, where the spirit represented by the oil of the olive tree fuels the lamps. The oil of the olive tree fuels the lamps. And so, too, here we have the olive trees and the lamps functioning together. What's the interpretation according to Zechariah 4? In verse 6 of that chapter, it says this, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's by God's spirit that the temple will be rebuilt in that chapter. Here, it's by God's spirit that we will carry out the mission that God has given us. In other words, nothing will snuff out the light of our lampstands because we will always have the oil from the spirit, if you want to put it that way. We are empowered by the Spirit. We are empowered as olive trees. We have the Spirit as we function as lampstands, lights to the nation. In other words, we will carry out our mission. It will succeed. What does it say in verse 7? It says the church will complete its witness. They're only killed when they have finished their testimony, you'll see. We will finish our testimony. The Spirit will empower us to do so. And, and we see this in the fact that the church is protected, right? As, as we're a, a temple that's measured, as anyone who would try to kill us 
There's this imagery of, of fire coming out, and that's how they will be killed. God guarantees that we will be able to fulfill our mission of speaking to the nations. And yet, even in this, we see that part of the church's commission is ultimately to suffer. So now let's go to verse 7 and following, and we'll read these sections. And I want us to to note um, that this story of these two witnesses, I don't think we should be reading this as some sort of like end-time timetable, like some chart of how everything's going to go down. Like first the church is going to witness, and then there's going to become a point in history where we suffer. Okay, It's not witness, then suffer. I think this overall story is pointing us to the multifaceted experience of the church, that we not only witness, but we also suffer. And you'll see that in the fact that when the church here, these two witnesses are killed, they are dead for how long? Three and a half days, which is like a miniature of the three and a half years. So they overlap. These periods overlap, in other words. It, it symbolically parallels the 42 months, the trampling of the temple, and the 12, uh, 1260 days of witnessing. Okay, But nonetheless, in verse 7, we see the church suffering. Verse 7, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them, and kill them. Now, this is the first time we hear of this beast figure. He's going to get a whole profile in chapter 13. But just to give you an idea, he is he represents the empire, the, the, the state as influenced by demonic um, influences. And then in verse 8, we say, we see this. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And so here we get this mention of a great city, which is said to symbolically, on the one hand, kind of represent a Sodom-like city. Sodom and Gomorrah, as you know, were known for depravity. God destroyed them for their evil. Or it's symbolically called Egypt, this place of oppression that oppresses God's people. So this is a city that represents evil. It's a city that represents the oppression of God's people. I mean, they even killed the two witnesses, right? Eventually in the book, um, John will help identify this in the original context of these Christians in Asia Minor, that the, this, this great city is itself Rome. So Rome is the original meaning of this uh, great city. And yet it can also even include Jerusalem. Jerusalem can be an embodiment, an expression of this great city, because it's the place where Jesus was crucified. In other words, the great city is the archetype of any and every city that ever sets itself against God. It's what Augustine would call the city of man, as opposed to the new Jerusalem, the city of God. But this idea that, the, that these two witnesses are killed, and then you notice they're not buried. And to not be buried is, is a signal of shame. It would have been a, a, a great disgrace. And so not only does the church face persecution, as in the church dies here, but then the church is despised and disgraced and shamed by society. This symbolizes the disrepute that we face from unbelievers even today. We're not looked highly upon, we're looked low. And then in verse 10, 
Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. That the world rejoices at the church's demise. There's a hatred for the church. The church has a commission to suffer, in other words. But as we get to then verse 11 and 12, we see nonetheless that the church is vindicated. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. So we get this picture of resurrection. That even as the church dies, the church will be raised. In other words, the church will be vindicated by God. And this parallels what we will eventually find in Revelation 20, the the passage on the so-called millennium, where the martyred saints during this age, it says they come to life and they reign with Christ for a thousand years, that they're vindicated. Even as believers die, that nonetheless is our victory, according to Revelation. We conquer in dying. We are vindicated even as we die, even as we're shamed by the world. In God's eyes, it is victory. And then notice the response from the world in verse 13. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified, or maybe it would be better to say feared, like the fear of the Lord. The rest feared and gave glory to the God of heaven. And as we talked about last week, this idea of giving glory to God everywhere else in the book of Revelation is parallel with true repentance, having been converted. So the idea here is that that the, the nations actually, on account of seeing the church's witness and suffering, witnessing to the point of suffering, that the nations actually convert. This language, this, is, this interpretation is supported by the fact that there are only 7,000 who die by the earthquake. When God was judging Israel through Elijah, for example, only 7,000 were left as a remnant who hadn't fallen prey to the idolatry of Baal. Here, it's only 7,000 who are killed, and the great majority of everyone else is rescued. And so we get this, this theme at the very end of Revelation 11, or at, at the end of this section of Revelation 11, that is, of the nations actually converting on account of the church's witness. And we see this thread throughout the book of Revelation, maybe something that doesn't oftentimes get picked up as you think about Revelation. You typically think of Revelation as judgment, and of course there is a lot of that. But this theme of the nations actually converting, of the church having an evangelistic effect on the world. If we were to go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, the very beginning of the book, it talks about Christ dying for his people to make them a kingdom of priests. And then it quotes Zechariah 12.10 when it says, Behold, he's coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, literally, on account of him. And this is, in in Zechariah, the original meaning of mourn here was a signal of repentance. So it could be that people are mourning because they're terrified of God's judgment, or if the 
the, the allusion to Zechariah holds, the meaning holds, it's actually that the nations mourn in repentance. Or in chapter 3, verses 9, as, as Christ writes to the church of Philadelphia, you may remember as Dan preached that, we see that this the synagogue of Satan there, these Jews who are not actual Jews, as John says, spiritually speaking, they, ethnically speaking, they're Jews, but spiritually speaking, they're not. These people who oppress and marginalize the church in Philadelphia, Jesus actually says that those folks will come and they will bow down, literally worship God at your feet. There's a hope that those who are currently persecuting you through your faithfulness will eventually be converted and they will worship alongside with you. That's exactly what we see here in chapter 11. Those who persecute the two witnesses and actually kill them eventually join the two witnesses and are converted. Or in chapter 5 where it talks about Jesus as the one worthy to open the scroll. What does it say? You are, you are worthy. Why? Because you were slain and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And of course we read that now and we say, well yeah, we see that, right? We can look across the whole globe and we can see Christians in all different parts of the world. But imagine reading that in the early church. That's like a promise at that point. Future looking, you're looking for Jesus to go and save those people from all nations of the earth. We look back and we see how it's, how it's happening. But there's actually a missional um, promise. There's missional implications in saying that Jesus has redeemed people from all parts of the world. And then when we get to chapter 7, when John sees this 144,000 group, he ends up seeing it as actually a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages. He's seeing the mission fulfilled in the people of God as God is redeeming people out of the great tribulation. And so we do see the Great Commission in the book of Revelation. And how is the Great Commission fulfilled? As we see, not only through the church's witness, but through the church's witness to the point of suffering, even potentially unto death. It's as the church witnesses not only verbally, but then actually adorns the gospel. Not only do we preach the gospel, but we actually adorn the gospel by um, reflecting Christ's sufferings in our own suffering. That we, that we, 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 in that way, we make the gospel compelling by actually embodying the sort of suffering that Christ himself took on for us. And so what we see here is that Christ has commissioned the church for a prophetic ministry of suffering. It's through our witness coupled with our suffering that the world will be one to the gospel. And as I mentioned, we will unpack more of the implications and applications of this next week. Um, so we don't have a whole time to get into all the details that I'd love to. But at this point, I think it's worth considering, at least initially, is what it would look like for us to more self-consciously conceive of God's plan um, for the church to include suffering? What would that look like? If that was, a, that was more a part of our consciousness, that we, we assumed that, we knew that, that suffering was not merely an occasional byproduct of the church and her mission, but that it was actually a normative environment for the church on mission. It's normal, it's expected, and not only normal and expected, but it's actually a vehicle that God uses to carry out the mission. As was the case for Christ, his suffering was not peripheral, it wasn't an accident, 
It wasn't just on the, on the rim of his mission. His mission was actually unavoidably one of suffering. His mission was accomplished by heading straight into the suffering. You might even say suffering was his mission. And so likewise, the church. Now I can imagine some of you are maybe wondering, is this, this, is, this, is this getting weird? Are we getting into weird theological territory by arguing this? I remember talking um, similarly to a dear lady at a previous church uh, where I served, where this kind of came up and I mentioned how you know, the church is also expected to be a people that embodies the same sort of suffering that Jesus did. That Jesus suffered and we embody that same sort of suffering um, at the hands of our enemies, you know, not striking back, those sort of things, as Jesus did. And her response was one of being kind of puzzled and saying, well, no, that's, that's unique to Jesus. Like, Jesus was suffering because he was dying for our sins. We don't do that. And of course, let's be totally clear, Jesus' sufferings are absolutely unique. We're not, I'm not talking about us suffering in the sense of accomplishing atonement. Jesus died for our sins. His suffering was unique. And yet, in the New Testament, we see that the church is called to, to, to enter into the same pattern as Jesus in his suffering. 1 Peter chapter 2 says that for this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you a pattern. Christ sets the pattern for us so that we would follow in his steps of actually suffering just as he suffered. Or Peter and Paul, for example, they, sp- they speak of sharing in Christ's sufferings. That is, it's a part of our union with Christ. As we're united to Christ and we share in justification, we share in forgiveness of sins in Jesus, we also share in the sufferings that are in Jesus. Romans 8.17 says that we're fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. You want the glorification with Christ? You're going to get the suffering with Christ as well. John 15.20 says that a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted Jesus, they're going to persecute you as well. And even outside of just persecution, even outside of suffering in that sense, there's a general pattern in the New Testament that we follow in the steps of Christ, that the very thing that Christ embodied in his ministry, we step into and we experience that ourselves. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 says, that If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. As Jesus dies for our sins on the cross, so as we follow him, we take up our own cross. Or Philippians 2, talking about humility. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to talk about Jesus' ministry to the cross, about how God actually, he, Jesus actually empties himself to the point of becoming a human being, and, and, and it becomes obedient to the Father, even to the point of death on a cross. And that becomes the pattern then for our own humility. That as Christ shows humility, we are to have that same mind among ourselves. This is all over the New Testament. I think it's an undeveloped doctrine within our American evangelical mindset, though. What if we embodied this more? What if this was more self-consciously our expectation for the Christian life? Part of our union with Jesus is actually sharing in his pattern of suffering, taking our own cross. And what do we see in chapter 11 here? The same thing. These two witnesses, symbolically representing the church, are intentionally cast 
as following the same pattern of Jesus. They die, they're resurrected, and they're ascended. This fits the the, the theme of the book of Revelation as well, where we get this call to conquer. We saw this in the beginning, chapter 2 and 3, where it talks about um, the messages to the church. Jesus says, you need to conquer. You need to conquer. And it becomes this very ironic word. When we think of conquering, we think of force and military might, and we think of you know, pushing our way through, taking dominion, dominating. But the way we conquer is incredibly ironic, just like the way Jesus conquers is incredibly ironic. You'll notice in our own chapter today, chapter 11, verse 7, that we conquer by being conquered. Look at verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that arises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them. Wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to be the ones conquering. Why is the beast conquering us? Precisely, we conquer by being conquered. As chapter 12, verse 11 says, it says that we, the believers, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. We actually conquer the beast. We conquer Satan by being conquered. We have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Remaining faithful unto death is the way we conquer Just as Jesus is this surprising warrior king lion by means of being a lamb, he's the warrior king, how? By suffering. That's not expected. He conquers by being conquered. And in the same way, just as we saw that in chapter 5, so we see the great multitude, the army of God in chapter 7, How are they the army of God that wages God's holy war? By being the martyrs that come out of the great persecution, the great tribulation. I imagine that in our comfortable, triumphalistic, American evangelical culture, this could entail some rather revolutionary-type changes in our outlook in terms of how we engage the culture with the gospel. To be continued. We'll look at some more implications of that next week. But as we now head into the Lord's Supper, this is the very thing we celebrate every week, is it not? Jesus told us as he was instituting the Lord's Supper, transforming the Exodus, transforming this imagery we find so often in the book of Revelation, saying that ultimately the Exodus pointed to himself that the Passover lamb who took the judgment of God so that the Israelites might have the judgment pass over them, Jesus ultimately fulfills that in the cross. That in Jesus, as he dies for the sins of all those who trust in him, the judgment of God then passes over us. Why? Because the judgment was placed on Christ for us. And even as we think about our own pattern of suffering that we're called to as the church, to follow in the steps of Jesus, to follow the Lamb wherever he goes, as chapter 14 in Revelation says. The only reason we have that pattern of suffering, we have the commission we have, is ultimately because Christ himself first established it for us in his unique way as the atonement for our sins, as the Lamb who was slain, the one who is worthy to hold the destiny of history and this world in his hands. 
because he has redeemed his kingdom. And isn't it amazing that in his grace, he has chosen to include us as a part of that kingdom and a part of that destiny. It didn't have to be that way. The book of Revelation could just be all judgment and no salvation, but praise God, in his grace and in his freedom, he chose to save us at the very cost of Christ.